Hello, and thank you for joining the New Life Baptist Church podcast. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you through this platform, and it's our desire that you would have an open heart to receive what the Lord has for you through this message. If you'd like to contact us, please visit our website at newlifecasagrande.com. There you'll find contact information to reach us directly, or if you're local to the Casa Grande area, you'll find information to plan your first visit. If you benefit from this sermon, please share it with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Now, let's get ready to hear what God has for us today. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter number three is where we're going to be today. Revelation chapter number three. And again, thank you for joining with us this morning. If you're a guest here at New Life Baptist Church, we are honored that you are a part of the service today. Uh, but you're going to have to kind of be like that, that cowboy, right, that is chasing the train. And uh, he's coming alongside of the train, but the train's moving a little faster than he and the horse is, right? And he reaches out, and it just jerks him, and, and, and he hops on board. Um, since we have been in this study now for seven weeks, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, but you're going to have to grab the rail of the train and just swing up on board and get moving along with us today. And uh, we'll explain why that's important in just a moment. Uh, before I jump in this morning, I would like to just kind of develop a thought that I think we need to tie into the text before we get going today. Um, there's, there's probably never been a sermon that I have preached that did not come with a, what is called a sermon illustration, and, 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 and an illustration in a sermon uh, simply ought to be a window by which we see into biblical truth. Uh, Jesus Christ was the master of the illustration. When, when he walked this earth, he was able to take common everyday things that surrounded he and his disciples or uh, the people in whom he was teaching and uh, provide an avenue for them to see truth through that thing. The Apostle Paul was great at this as well. Uh, matter of fact, he specifically one time used the idea of winning a wreath uh, in order uh, for us to see uh, the, the purpose, the, the, the desire to win a prize. Now, for you and for me, in the 21st century, winning a crown made of leaves is not a big deal. Matter of fact, if you were to watch the Olympic Games... Um, you would not see the winner of the track meet uh, receiving a wreath made of leaves. But today in our time, they would receive a, a ribbon with gold, silver, or bronze hanging from it. Uh, but when the Apostle Paul taught Scripture, and in the day in which he lived, the winner of a game would win a, um, a wreath made of leaves, and that helped those people living in that time connect winning with the Bible truth that he was trying to give. And again, I do that all the time. Now, understanding context of Scripture is really important. And I, I failed to touch on this as we launched into the churches. But each of these churches that we're discussing were uh, churches located in particular areas. Matter of fact, last week we discussed the church at Pergamos, they, they sat several thousand feet above sea level. Out of all the seven cities, they were the ones that were the highest, and they prided themselves on being located on top of a hill because it gave them a sense of security. I hope that makes sense, which ties into the truth 
that Jesus was teaching that sometimes there are people who have a false sense of security and are not quite as safe as they think they are, right? And that was the issue with the church at Pergamos. Now, today we're going to be studying the church of Philadelphia. And if, you're, if you've been journeying with us through this, uh, we're, we're studying the seven churches that are uh, mentioned and referenced at the beginning of the book of Revelation before we dive in uh, to some other thoughts. Now, with that being said, let's kind of go back and quickly, briefly recap, because you're going to tie what I just developed in just a moment when I give you the actual location of the church at Philippi or, or, or Philadelphia and, um, and some of the things that surrounded its cultural context, it's going to tie into the message this morning. Uh, so here's three things for us to remember quickly, those of you jumping in. Number one, okay, who is writing these letters? The who writing the letters is Jesus Christ. So we're going to reference that in just a moment when we um, look at this particular letter written to the church at Philadelphia. So Jesus Christ is the author. He's the one addressing. He's the one writing the letters. Number two, who is he writing the letters to? Four different types of people. It was a literal church at that moment, at that time, when he wrote the letter. Secondly, it represents types of churches, okay, types of churches that have always existed and could exist right now. Number three, it represents individuals because individuals make up churches. You should today be able to tie yourself into one of these churches. There should be similarities that you could attach to your own life that sound familiar in the text that, that you either need to get right with God or could be complimented for, right? Uh, individuals. Number four, uh, church eras, which means since Jesus died and was buried and rose again, we have seen these churches throughout history from 60, 70 AD until 2021. There have been seven sections of time that represent the seven prophetical churches here in the text. Now, uh, again, I don't have all the years listed out in front of us, but last week we looked at the church at Pergamos that is a representation of the Dark Ages, when religion was stamped out and compromised and when the gospel of Jesus Christ was hindered. This time we're going to discuss the 1700s to the early 1900s, all right? So we're getting closer to our era. Next week, we'll look at Laodicea, which the church age it represents is 1900s until present, okay? So are, are we together? Who is doing the speaking class? Jesus Christ. Who is he speaking to? The churches, four types, okay? The church Immediately at the current moment when this was written, church ages that we're living in, church individuals like us, and church types like we've seen all throughout the ages. Now, thirdly, why? Now, this is what is so important. This is why we are taking the time to dig into this. And this is what, if we miss this, is the danger for us here today. The third reason, the why, is Christ is coming. Whether you're new to church, whether this is your first time to church in your life, uh, 
Whether you've been in church all of your life, we all need to recognize a Bible, biblical truth that Jesus Christ is coming. And it is closer now than it has ever been. Meaning the Bible tells us that someday there's going to be a trumpet, a literal trumpet that sounds. And at the sounding of that trumpet, those who are dead but were believers prior to their death are going to rise First, they're going to come up out of the grave. This is not some spooky teaching. This is the Bible. This is the resurrection. Since Jesus died and was buried and rose again, we that belong to him will also someday, which have died, will rise again with him. The trump's going to sound. The dead in Christ are going to rise. Some say because they need a six-foot head start. Okay, and I don't, I don't know if that's the case, but they're going to rise first. And then those that are alive and remain will be called up together to meet the Lord in the sky. And at that point, the seven-year tribulation will begin here on earth that is prophesied not once, but hundreds of times in Scripture. Many verses prophesy that someday the day of the Lord is going to come when he will judge the earth for their rejection of him and that seven-year tribulation will begin. All right, since I know that to be true, it is vitally important that right now I recognize where I fit within the seven churches. Does that make sense? Do you understand now why Jesus is telling prophetically what is happening now within the church because there's coming a time where he's going to come and take us forever to be with him and those that remain will go through that tribulation period where the wrath of God will be unleashed on mankind for their rejection of him and for following Satan himself. All right? This is important because when I recognize where I am, it gives me a different standpoint on how to be ready. Um, my fourth born child uh, just hit his 15 and a half year mark, all right, which means that he just got his learner's permit. Uh, the state of Arizona allows him to receive that. Before that, whenever it was time to go to church, whenever it's time to go out to eat, whenever it's time to leave the house, Reese, Reese, are you ready? Reese, we got to go. Reese, come on, let's go, okay? But, but now that's changed. Now I come downstairs to leave. He's already sitting by the door. He's got his shoes on. He's got his gear with him. He's got the car keys in his left hand and his permit in his pocket. Why? Because he's now 15 and a half and he's excited. And knowing that he gets to drive, right? He's ready to drive. Dad, can I drive? Dad, can I drive? Can I drive? It's constant. Okay. Knowing what is coming has prepared him for where he's at right now. And this is so important. This is why we're studying the churches. Knowing where we are right now helps us to uh, see clearly why I need to be ready or maybe why I need to confess some things and get right with God. Maybe why I need to repent and quit going my way and go God's way. Maybe knowing this will help me to impact the lives of other people because Jesus is coming back, and this is how I recognize that, right? Seven churches that John wrote to literally over 2,000 years ago, seven churches that represent seven types of churches that are existing now, seven churches that represent seven different individuals in this room. 
matter of fact, you can't leave here without being identified as one of these. You do fit in one of these categories. Seven churches that represent seven church ages, spans of time. We're going to look at the 1700s through the 1900s that is prophetically uh, laid out for us in this passage. All right, so uh, let's give a little background of why Jesus is saying what he's saying to this particular church named Philadelphia. To the church at Philadelphia, located in what is today known as modern-day Turkey. If you want to look at your map, find Turkey. The church of Philadelphia is located in that area, 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was built by Adelus Philadelphius, who was the king of Pergamos. He died in A.D. 138. Now, the name Philadelphia came from this king who um, built the city, but the reason it was named Philadelphia is because um, he himself had an, an uncanny, different kind of love for his own physical brother. The word Philadelphia is where we get the idea of brotherly love. Even now, we have a place called Philly, right? And uh, it's known for its amazing cheesesteak, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And that's what makes us love each other because all of us can get around a good, healthy Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich. Amen. All right. So the idea of brotherly love is the idea uh, behind Philadelphia. The city was an important. This is, this is so cool. This is the connection. This city just happened to be a prime city for the movement of mail. It was one of the hubs for the, can I, can I use our vernacular, the postal service of that day. A lot of the postal information would come into Philadelphia and then be dispersed out among uh, the places that it needed to go. That's going to be significant in a moment because, again, God ties its location to its eventual uh, purpose and plan, and that is a door has been opened for the gospel to go out from. Isn't that cool? Remember last week, Pergamos? Again, up on the mountaintop. That mountaintop brought the people of Pergamos this sense of false security, like they could never be attacked and harmed, but they actually were destroyed, which means you think you're alive and okay, but you're actually dead. Remember that from last week? It's, it's amazing how God ties all this stuff together in his precious word. So this is Philadelphia, which represents uh, in the church age, I said the 1700s to the 1900s. That is the age of the Great Awakening, the first and second Great Awakening, great revivals, great evangelism, the gospel of God going out. So with that being said, open your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 7. The Bible says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Okay, so right away from the launch of this passage, the question of who is writing the text is answered for us. That answer has been given all throughout the churches, but let's look specifically in this context to uh, why Christ defines himself in this way. He says four things here. He basically says, number one, I am holy. 
Uh, By the way, there is only one that is perfectly holy. The word holy means righteous, without spot, without wrong, without blemish. There is only one that has been righteous, without spot, without blemish. That has been our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe. Secondly, he says, I am the one that is not just holy, but I am the one that is true. Jesus said in John chapter number 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became what? Flesh. Who became flesh and dwelt among us? Jesus Christ. So who is writing this text? The one that is holy, Jesus. The one that is true, Jesus, the one that holds the key of David. Now, this is significant. It's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse number 22, where Jesus is mentioned as the coming one of the seed of David who will hold the keys and has the key of authority. Now, now this is so important to this Philadelphian church because they're going to have to recognize the one who opened the door is the one that has the authority to do so. He is the one that draws the line in the sand. Let's, for the sake of understanding, continue to read, and we're going to get to this in a little bit. He says here, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength, and hast kept to my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, but are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept my word of patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. So so according to the text, according to the Bible, not according to me and this church, but according to the word of God, what is the line in the sand to those who claim or uh, the line in the sand to those who, those who God calls his own and those who he says are not his own? According to the text, what is the line in the sand? Is it religion? Not according to that. He said some of you are of the synagogue of Satan. Is it um, is it Family. Is it heritage? Is it um, uh, the, the, the fact that he's a Jew or she's a Jew? No. According to that, some people call themselves actual Jews, and they're, they're, they're really not. Um, is it being good or bad? Not according to the text. According to the text, the dividing line between those that are his and those that are not his, according to whose authority? Jesus' authority are those who accept and believe and obey and follow the promise. All right, all right, so, so, so with that being said, here we go back to the beginning. Several things I want you to see in the text concerning their works. Notice the uh, verse number eight. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And no man can shut, so we see the holiness of God. We see the trueness of God. We see the sovereignty of God. We see the authority of God in that, watch, watch, God can open the door that no man can shut. He's in complete control. He's a sovereign, holy, good God. Ready? And God has shut the door 
that no man can open. It is God that is working. It is God that is moving. It is God that is opening. And I want you to see what um, Jesus compliments them, them on. So as we move into verse number eight, watch this. This is the second of two churches that gets no condemnation. So again, if you've been with us throughout the study of all of these churches, you'll know that out of seven churches, there's only two that gets no criticism. There's only two that gets no condemnation. There's only two that doesn't get uh uh uh. And the two are Smyrna, the church that went through persecution for their faith, and Philadelphia, the church that is faithful the church that is faithful. And I want us to dive into seeing how they were faithful. First of all, he says you were faithful with the opportunities given. He said, I gave you an open door and you were faithful to walk through that door. He said, I opened a door that no man can shut. And we recognize from the text, from what we're going to see in just a moment, that the believers at that time walked through the door that God had opened and had trusted in him for that opening. You were faithful to walk through the door that I have opened. If you go back to the 1700s, the 1700s began... I'm going to use the word a revolution. It seems to be a popular word. It began a time of revival. Uh, the word back then would have been, it began a time of reformation. The 1700s trailed the dark ages. And remember, we discussed last week that the dark ages was a time in history when the gospel, uh, many tried to stamp it out through compromise of Bible truth. It, it, it's not like they stood up and said, Christ is a liar and the word of God is a liar. No, it was stamped out through deceit. It was stamped out through lying. It was stamped out through false doctrines that were implemented. It was stamped out by the works of men. Um, and now, all of a sudden, there's this awakening this reformation time, this breaking forth of biblical truth, which means God did what? He opened the door. A door that uh, at, up to this point he had not opened yet fully. But now that door of the gospel is going to be fully opened like never before. So they were faithful to walk through the door. Number two, you are faithful to trust in me instead of your weakness. You were faithful to trust in a time of weakness. Notice what he says in the text. The Bible says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength. This does not mean in context that they, they didn't have the power of God. What it means is though the door was opened, their strength as a whole, as a people, was little. And instead of looking at their size or looking at themselves, they looked to the power of God, and God helped them in their weakness to overcome. They trusted in God instead of emphasizing their weakness. They, they did not live on I can't, but rather they lived in light of he can through me. 
and they walked through the door faithfully, and they did not trust in their own weaknesses. Even though you had little strength, instead, number three, you were faithful to keep my word. Thou hast kept my word. Okay, look at the contrast to the previous church, the church at Pergamos. Remember we talked last week how that church did not keep his word. This is the final authority. This is what settles my faith and my practice in every area of life. The word of God. And the Bible says this particular church kept the word of God. The word kept simply means this. It is the, it is the idea of... Um, uh, of, of holding or adhering to. Uh, it, it's the idea of protecting and securing. It's the idea of keeping. Okay, so if I leave my house and I leave a list of instructions for my kids to follow, within those instructions, you would have to recognize and admit there is a sense of stability, a sense of protection, a sense of preservation that comes about that, right? For instance, hey guys, dad's leaving the house. Uh, while I'm gone, uh, I do not want any open flames in the home. Okay, why am I asking that? It, 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 that there is a sense of protection. There's a 10-year-old in the house, and I don't want him to have access to, you know, uh, matches while I'm not at home and while he's not in my supervision so that accident can't happen and the house can't burn down. So if I leave the house and the child that's in the home decides to follow my word, what they're doing is they're keeping... They're adhering to what dad says for the purpose of preservation, protection. It, it, it's not always just this list of rogue rules, but it's adhering to something. It's keeping it for the purpose of preservation. And this is the church that did this. They lived by the word. They died by the word of God. The word of God became um, the core of who they were. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ became the essence of this particular church in Philadelphia and this particular church age of the gospel. We'll explain that in just a minute. Fourthly, look what happened here. The Bible says you were faithful to stand up for Christ. You did not deny me. You did not deny my authority. You did not deny who I am. So there's a remnant, there's a part of this church in Philadelphia that chose to do exactly what they were asked to do. And they did not deny the name of Jesus. But the word deny here is not just the word to reject, but it's the idea of not rejecting for the sake of proclamation. It's one thing for me to ask Dan. Dan, do you have a favorite ball team? Do you have a favorite NFL team? Do you think they're the best team? Yep, there's another guy in the room that I think thinks that his team and your team is the best NFL team ever. His name is Mike Owens. Mike Owens thinks the same team that Dan thinks is the best team. Do you love your team? Dan, can you say, go team? No. 
You messed up the illustration. Actually, that really helps. It's one thing to deny in my mind that there is no other team as good as my team and no other quarterback as good as Patrick Mahomes. I mean, um, as good as my quarterback, right? Um, that, that, that's, I could do that. I could say, hey, Mike Owens, do you love your team? Yeah, I love my team. And I deny any other team, right, that would come against my team. Well, Dan, who, who's your team? Go team! Does it really matter who's, whose team he's cheering for? The idea of denying one is always the idea of giving myself to another. Don't miss that. And it, he couldn't help but to let it rattle out and mess up the whole illustration by saying, my team is the Chiefs. Okay, so what did he do? He denied the Cowboys. He denied the Bengals. He denied the Cardinals. He, you see what I'm saying? And he proclamated, he gave himself to, he surrendered through denying to something else. And when the Bible, this is the literal word for this, and they understood it in its context when they received the letter, that they would not have needed that illustration. They knew what he was saying. And this church at Philadelphia goes, yeah, yeah, our team is Christ. My team is Jesus. And I'm going to tell everybody about him. I have given myself to the service of his kingdom. I've given myself to holding and cleaving to keeping what is right. I have given myself to walking through the open door that God has given to us because I am team Jesus. Are you ready? Outside of Ephesus, our first church that followed the gospel Okay, so again, it's so hard sometimes to preach to, um, to a group that uh, has, it's not, you know, like a school class that haven't been here for every lesson. And, and, and that is not condemnation. I'm just trying to keep everybody caught up. The first church was Ephesus right after Jesus, okay? And they were for Jesus. They were in love with Jesus, but they got so busy doing ministry in life that they lost their love. But outside of Ephesus, watch no church, no church said, I am for Team Jesus, loudly. No church age did it more boldly than Smyrna, and they lost their life for it. Which means although they were proclamating the gospel, the door was what? It seemed to be a little shut. But now there's a time, there's an error, there's a people, there's a church that is saying, I'm team Jesus. I'm all for Christ. I'm not denying him. I'm clinging to him. I'm walking through a door that God has opened for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the name Jesus Christ. Church, that is amazing. And although I think today the church as a whole, not new life necessarily in its fullness, but the church as a whole is in the Laodicean age. We'll talk about that next week. So important that you're here next week. So important that we come and hear the age in which we're living. But I believe even now today there are still churches who say we are team Jesus. And we're not going to compromise the gospel. We're not going to trade the word of God. We're going to hold tight to We're going to stand for Christ. We're going to keep his word and not deny him. But for the sake of 
the history, the prophetic timeline, if we could, the 1700s to the 1900s. Let me share just a little, some facts with you. By the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it would be wise of you, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again, to pick up some books. There are some simple books written about the history of the church from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven and the church itself began until now. It, it, it's really good to see that timeline and how God has preserved his word and his message over the history of time. It, it, it is pretty amazing. And I encourage you to pick that up. I can help you find some books to read that might be a lot of fun to read and listen to. But it's during this time that the Great Awakening began. Let me throw out some names and some thoughts. Uh, names like um, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was one of the uh, Great Awakening preachers and a man known as the greatest American Bible thinker. As a graduate of Yale, he became the pastor at Northampton, and at the age of 17, in 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a message that is still famous today entitled, Sins in the, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the open door of fervency upon God, the Holy Spirit's power upon that message was so real as he preached to hundreds of people. The stories are told that people were littering, literally holding on to the back of their seats, gripping it, thinking that at any moment they were going to slip into hell. As they learned who they were according to Scripture, that they were sinners that were destined for a place called hell. But Jesus Christ sent his son to die and was buried and rose again to pay their sin debt. And if they believed on him, and many people trusted Jesus Christ. And from that, this movement, this awakening began to really snowball. There was another guy by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was known as the Prince of English Evangelist. And his gospel message about Jesus Christ was so absolutely clear and distinct that the Church of England banned him from preaching within the city limits. Now imagine you preaching truth, but the church not letting you preach it. So, so you see the idea of compromise and how the church was corrupt at that time, at the end of the dark ages, coming into the great awakening. And, and they said that George Whitfield said, okay, I'll preach on the outside of the city. They would build him little tiny platforms. He would have up to 10, literally, look the stories up, 10 to 20,000 people on the outskirts of cities, standing out in fields, sitting on the ground as he preached. And without amplification, somehow... Everybody's ear heard clearly what he was saying. Somehow, he did this over and over again, and it's from that that missionaries were sent. It's from that that the gospel spread rapidly. It's from that that people got saved, lives changed, and something began to happen for the power of God. The second great awakening had names such as Charles Finney. Uh, here's a famous one in America, D.L. Moody. Anybody ever heard of the Moody Bible Institute? Uh, all of that was started from this great preacher, D.L. Moody. R.A. Torrey is a big name. A lot of books out there written by R.A. Torrey. You ought to pick them up. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest English and American preachers ever to stand in a pulpit, whom which when he proclaimed the gospel... Hundreds upon thousands of people trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. See what I'm saying? God opened a door. God opened the door, and things begin to happen. Lives begin to change. Matter of fact, matter of fact, a lot of us are sitting in church today 
because of these men and people who got saved in their meetings and then went out from that place and started churches. So let me just give you just a quick synopsis of understanding. Um, The revivals of the New England area up in Rhode Island, a guy trusts Jesus Christ as a Savior. He decides to go where churches aren't. He makes his way all the way down to the south. He plants the first Baptist church in the state of North Carolina. I've actually stood in that second building. The first one burnt down. I've stood in the Sandy Creek area inside that first building. It is said that people walked 40 miles to go to church on Sunday. I can barely twist the arm of some to drive four minutes in an air-conditioned car to come to church on Sunday, and they walked 40 miles one way to go to church on a Sunday. And from that location, that's where they say, historically, they believe, from that little tiny church in Randolph County is where the um, Bible Belt began. You ever heard the phrase, the Bible Belt? North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Virginia, Florida, all the churches in the Bible Belt started from a little place called Sandy Creek, North Carolina, in the Second Great Awakening following the preaching of some of these men. You see how God all of a sudden opened a door in England, opened a door in America for the preaching of the gospel. It's amazing. By the way, check this out. This all happened during this span of time right here. Missions, William Carey, the father of modern missions, Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma, the first overseas missionary was from this time. David Livingston, who not only was a great missionary, but a great political leader, uh, served in Africa. Hudson Taylor, father of faith missions, went to China. Thousands of people saved. Are you ready? This is crazy. You know what? During this span of time, Christian colleges began. Christian education, great, powerful, amazing Christian colleges, such as, ready? Yale. Yes. Yale was launched during this era of time as a Bible-believing college to train pastors. Not today. Here's another one. Harvard. Harvard wasn't some secular institution. Harvard was a college started to train believers. And it's beginning and it's birthing. Are you ready for another one? Princeton. Matter of fact, the motto for Princeton was, this shall be a place where the gospel and the word of God will be proclamated and taught. Princeton University, William and Mary, and matter of fact, my favorite, Duke University. Didn't start out as Duke University. It started out in Randolph County under the name of Trinity College, a college that was started on Christian values and foundations, and none of those colleges today, none of them stand on Bible truth anymore. Matter of fact, reject Bible truth. Isn't that interesting? All of that started during the 1700s to the early 1900s in this era of time where God opened a door. When God opens a door, no man can shut it. That's why my ears perk up when I hear and read in scriptures, he that hath an ear... Let him hear while you have time to hear. And, and, and it's important to recognize that God um, so powerfully and wonderfully showed himself mighty during this time as the gospel began to spread over the known world. 
But here's his counsel. Look at verse number 9. His counsel. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Uh, By the way, those are unsaved Jews. Okay, notice this next line. Which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. And to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. So here God now is going to, after he recognizes their works, he is going to give them some counsel. And inside of this time of counsel, here's what he's going to do. First of all, he is going to comfort them concerning their their opposition, and he's going to comfort them concerning their persecutors. So at this time, when John wrote the letter back at the church of Philadelphia, there were some Jews in the synagogue who were uh, by birth Jewish, but were not actually children of God. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying, meaning they're from their father Abraham, but because they did not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they were not children of God. And these within the synagogue of Satan had begun to persecute and oppose these that were trying to live righteously and hold on to Bible truth. Matter of fact, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 wrote these words, and this is the defining line between uh, those who are actually children of God and those who are not. Here's what the Bible says. In verse number 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel. So, so what he's saying, it, he's saying it, it, it's, it's not like the Bible is not affecting, impacting, guiding. Um, although there might be rebellion to that, there is still success to that. Here's, here's how he puts it. They are not all of Israel, which are of Israel. Hmm, that's kind of, that's kind of contradictory, isn't it? They're not all of Israel who are of Israel. What is he saying? Neither because they are, they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac thy seed shall be called. That is, what that means is this, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So simply what he's saying as he's speak, speaking to uh, uh, Greeks in Rome and Jews in Rome, he's simply saying this. Just because they are the children of Abraham does not mean they're my children. My children are not built upon those who are of bloodline, but my children are built upon not only those of Isaac's bloodline, but believers of the promise. Those who put their faith in the promise of God. Those who put their faith in their flesh and their birthright, they're not mine. Those who put their faith in Christ and in the gospel, they're mine. That is what he's saying here in the text. So here back in Philadelphia, there are some Jews religious people that are bringing opposition to those who are small in number but are clinging to the faith and clinging to truth. All right, now watch this. I'm almost through. Still true today. And very true, by the way, in the 1700s to the 1900s. In the 1700s, Although the name of Christ was blasting forward and moving uh, very aggressively, at that time, we see some of the greatest false doctrines and cults and um, opposition to faith ever came out of that segment of time from the 1700s to the 1900s. Many, not just um, 
By the way, if you look back in history, uh, at least, can I say this based upon last Sunday? At least Roman Catholicism believed in Jesus Christ. They believed in uh, God as the creator. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the virgin birth of Mary, right? So, uh, but they added works, remember? In this era of time, there would come cults and religions and false doctrines and teachings that were totally opposite The Holy Spirit is not real. Jesus is not God. Do these things in your merit several levels. I mean, there were were all kinds of things rising up during this time. Deism was huge during this time. This name sound familiar? Um, Evolution. Charles Darwin. That's what arose during the same time in opposition. All right, again, being super careful, uh, the Jehovah's Witness began during this time. Began. Mormonism began during this slot. If you want to learn a lot about that history, Mac right now is literally writing it all out and, and doing podcasts that I hope everybody's going to listen to to help learn how the false teaching and false doctrines got started. And it's, it's, so, it's so just, wow, it's uncanny. It's interesting to watch that when the door opened for the gospel to go forward, at the same time, the synagogue of Satan, opposition, rose up in false teaching. Hey, by the way, I would always be careful with something that is new. Because wasn't God alive before the new revelation came out? I would be careful with that. And there are people sitting in this room right now who still believe in the the false doctrine and the false teaching of evolution. Evolution's new, guys. Somebody sat on an island and came up with all these ideas. And guess what? Evolution is believed by faith. Therefore, evolution is a religion. It's not just a science. Because in order to believe in evolution, you have to do it by faith because you were not there when it started. It cannot be reproduced in a lab. Therefore, you have to believe it by faith. Now, I wasn't there when it all was created. So I've come to my conclusion by faith as well. But I found my conclusion in the Word of God where it said God made everything in six literal days, and on the seventh day he rested. Does that make sense? All this stuff came out during the 1700s to the early 1900s. Isn't that interesting? And so we see him teaching this church the importance of standing and believing and resting in their faith, and he comforted them concerning their opposition. And by the way, never forget this. Religion is Satan's number one trump card. Number one trump card is religion. More people have been killed in the name of religion than any other one purpose or reason behind death. More people have been killed in the name of religion. That's why I despise religion. I hate religion. I think it's oppressive. I think it's wrong. And I prefer to be in love with someone in a relationship, Jesus Christ, and not put under opposition and false thinking of religious networks. It is so important that we see this within the scriptures and in church history. 
Today, today, right now, God is speaking to our hearts and asking you, are you going to believe in, in man's philosophies and ideals? Or are you going to believe in the word of God? So they were comforted concerning their opposition and, and his faithfulness concerning coming tribulation. He said, I will deliver you. Look at verse 10. I will deliver you from the trouble to come. This is our uh, first in the book of Revelation, clear reference to the rapture and to the tribulation that is to come. I will keep thee from. This is so cool. To me, this is one of the verifying verses of the rapture. Some people say the word rapture is not even in the Bible. You're right. It doesn't have to be, but the definition and the thought behind rapture is. Okay, what the word rapture mean? It means a calling away from, a coming up from, to be raptured out of here. If I ran off the platform and I grabbed you by your shirt sleeve and I jerked you out of the auditorium, I have raptured you out of this room. Okay, do you understand that? That is the, what the word means. Notice what he says here. I will keep you, what is the next word in the text? From, not through, not in. I will keep you from. The Greek word literally means in its definition to be pulled out of. From, kept from, not through, not in. What? The coming tribulation. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ and believe and rest in me, who walk through that door and hold tightly to the things of God, I will keep you from, from the temptation, the day of the Lord to come. Where, notice what the text says, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall, be, uh, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon earth. And then thirdly, he says, I'm going to admonish you concerning my return. Notice what he says now. Behold, I come. What, church? Quickly. I'm not going to tell you when I come. I'm just going to tell you that I'm coming. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast. Hold fast to which thou hast, that no man can take thy crown. Man, what a, what a powerful thought today. Hold fast. Church, Jesus is coming. Hold tightly to what you know to be true. Proclamate what you know to be true. Tell others what you know to be true. Take the word of God and give it out. The door is still open for the sharing of the gospel. There are still people who need to know the name of Jesus Christ. And I think the Lord will be ready to come back when that final person believes and puts their faith upon him that, that he has opened the door to see and, and, and understanding through the power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. There's still time. Share the gospel. Hold fast. He's coming. Be ready. And so let's close with this. What is the reward? Notice here in the text, verse number 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my name. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Two things are going to happen to the person who overcomes and follows the direction of the Lord here. Number one, the Bible says there will be a position given. Then secondly, identification given. This is so important. Here's what the Lord says. If you overcome right now, in this time when God's opened the door, if you walk through the door and hold fast to the things of God and do not deny my name, but instead... Fight off the opposition of Satan and live faithfully for me. To him that does this, the word of God says, I will make you a pillar 
in my temple. And the word pillar there is not necessarily um, just the idea of a concrete post that holds up the lid on the front porch. Okay, Um, the idea of a pillar here in Bible times, the pillar was the first thing you would see when you came into the courtyard and upon the pillar, they would recognize the spot and upon that spot, they would write things on the pillars. If if you go to our own capital right now and you'll find that on the pillars of some of the buildings, there are names and things written on the pillars. Okay, it gives the idea of prominence the idea of identification, the idea of position. You're important enough to be stabilized right here and for me to write. Now check this out. The Bible says for those of us who overcome and conquer and walk through the door that God has given to us, the Bible says he will give us that position, that pillar spot, and then upon that pillar he'll write his name, the name of his place, and notice again, Thirdly, what he says here, and upon him, I will write upon him a new name. He'll get a new name. Identification with Christ, with his work, with his temple, with his presence. Church, God, he rewards the righteous. And he's ready to fulfill what he has promised. Study the context of that. It's so powerful in the book of Romans. And I hope that today we will recognize that God is speaking to us and right now recognize that the Lord has um, not only does he know our work, he knows right now whether you're walking through the open door, he knows whether you're denying his name or not at work. What did you do this weekend? Well, I went to church. (laughs) Why did you go to church? Because I had to. Stop denying his name. Stand for Christ. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to be corrupt. You don't have to give in. Stand for Jesus. Proclamate him. Let me tell you why I went to church. You got a couple of minutes? And about then they're going to go, uh, uh, uh. No, 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 no. You asked. Let me tell you. Let me tell you why. Because I love my Savior. Don't tell them you love your pastor or you love your church or you got friends you want to hang out with at church. That is not why you're here. And if that is why you're here, you're Ephesus and you lost your first love. Let me tell you why I was at church. Because I'm a sinner and I am broken and I need Christ and I need the power of his word to change my life, to help my marriage, to help me parent, to help me be what I need to be for him. Because he died on the cross and was risen again on the third day. And I want you to know that so your sins can be forgiven, so you can go to heaven. They won't ask again why you went to church on Sunday. Right? Share the message. Don't deny him. The door is open. If God has opened the door, then share it. Walk through it. You say, Pastor, I'm, I'm just nobody. I'm just, I'm just a Sunday school teacher. I'm just, I just, you know, come and sit, and I'm just an usher, or I'm just, you know, I, I just help people in the lobby. I mean, I, I mean, what, what, what can I really do? Listen to what the text is saying. If God opens the door, he's given you the power to walk through it, no matter how weak you feel. So hold tight to the word. Do not deny him and stand for Christ. One of the greatest preachers to ever walk this planet, his name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist that changed America 
in, in so many ways with the gospel. But let me tell you how D.L. Moody got a start. The whole D.L. Moody Bible Institute and Moody Publications and all the stuff you guys see. You want to know where that got its beginning? It got its beginning with a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball. When D.L. Moody was 18 years of age, he had started attending a church, and he had a Sunday school teacher who recognized that D.L. Moody uh, didn't really know Christ and was searching for something. And D.L. had started going to church and was just kind of hanging out and attending, but he never really, you know, committed. And so Mr. Kimball, one morning, a little before 8 o'clock, got up to go meet D.L. Moody at his shoe shop. D.L. Moody was a, a boot repair guy, a shoe repair guy, a shoe salesman. And, and the story's told, Mr. Kimball tells the story how he got to the door of the shoe shop, and it was right at 8 o'clock, and work was about to begin, and he almost didn't go in. Josh, he almost walked away from the door. And, and he said he paced right there in front of the door, and, and he thought, well, uh, why not? I, I, I've got to tell him. I, I've, I've got to go in. And Kimball walks into the door, and in the back of that shoe shop, he just comes out, just says it, right? Hey, D.L., God loves you. And Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay your sin debt. And he conquered that when he rose again from the grave. And the story is told that right there in that little room, D.L. Moody prayed and trusted Jesus Christ as a Savior and gave his life to him. If you go study the life of D.L. Moody, the man preached to thousands of people. Again, churches all across America and England are a result of his preaching. And there are missionaries that have gone all across the world as a result of his preaching. And families were saved as a result of the gospel message preached by this man named D.L. Moody. Do not ever look at yourself as small. When God opens the door, walk through it. Walk through it. He loves you, and he loves the people that you're connected to. So hold tight. Do not deny him. Share the message of Christ and see what God does through the open door. Be faithful. Father, we love you today. We thank you for the time that you give us. We want to thank you for joining us on the NLBC podcast today. We hope that God will allow this message to truly make a difference in your life. As you learn more about Him and as you study His Word, we pray that it will cause you to live out the gospel in a whole new way. Again, if you would like to connect with us, feel free to reach out by visiting our website at newlifecasagrande.com. If you are local to the Casa Grande area, then we would love to have you join us in person. We have services at 8.30 and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning with a host of other opportunities to develop a godly community to learn and to grow. We'll see you next week on the New Life Baptist Church podcast.